All right, we'll see how the microphone does here this morning. So uh, I've got to say that the, the feedback, hey, Kenny, when you get back there too, you chill these spots out just a tad if you can. So, um, I mean, I kind of like the rock star vibe, but it's, it's a little much this morning. So um, no, the feedback that I got from folks uh, around this message the first week uh, was pretty overwhelming. I probably got more texts and emails about uh, kind of this series and where we're heading. Um, and you know what I thought is, dang, you guys are angry. Like, what is going on out here, right? Um, actually, I think it's more because we have a lot of young parents um, in the audience and children can reveal anger that maybe we thought we were over and, you know, had pushed down. Uh, it's, we realize it's just, it's pretty close to the surface uh, if the right buttons are pushed, right? And I think that there's a genuine shame and guilt that comes sometimes from this sensing that we've kind of lost control of our emotions. And that can send us kind of spiraling, maybe even wondering um, why we can't be better Christians, right? I also think trying to figure out how to be angry in a proper way uh, about the right things can feel like pretty uncharted territory for most of us. So to kick things off last week, we acknowledged that we seem to be living in this increasingly angry society. We all seem to be a little more fragile these days. And scripture actually has a lot to say about anger. And we took a look at probably 10 different verses, um, ways that God described himself, ways that other people describe God. And, and the phrase that we kept coming back to was this idea of God being slow to anger, right? The biblical writers didn't say, don't be angry at all. They just said, be slow to it. And that in our anger, we aren't supposed to sin, which feels a little bit like telling somebody to jump in a pool, but don't get wet. Am I right? <laughs> it's tricky to figure out how to navigate that in a way that's not sinful. So each week of this series, we're going to be looking at a story from one of the four Gospels about Jesus' life. We're going to be taking a look at, at situations where he got angry about some things and see what we can learn from how he handled it. But we also pose what is really the most important question is, um, you know, are we getting angry about the right things? What did Jesus get angry about? And shouldn't we be concerned about the same issues that he was angry about as well? So last week, we explored Jesus's anger regarding the human condition. And we learned that Jesus is brokenhearted. It said that he was indignant, which, which we looked at and we said from the Greek means that he was literally like shaking mad. It said that he was deeply troubled and that he wept over just the condition of humanity and the things that we deal with in this broken world, this sin-scarred world, right? Because this wasn't the way that he created it to be in the beginning. And that anger led him to enter into the pain in people's lives in, in a lot of times just ways of just compassion and healing and mercy. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure whether this is going to be a good example today to share about Jesus's anger or if this is going to just give you a lot of really crazy ideas. And so just in case, I called Rob Willoughby, our building guy, and I said, I want you to bolt down every table in the church this week before Sunday comes, okay? So you guys kind of know where this sermon might be heading, right? Um, so there are two separate scenes in the Gospels 
where Jesus is literally so angry that he flips tables over in the temple, which is in Jerusalem. And it's like the, the most holy place in their faith. And he's just losing it on a couple different occasions. One author called these events Jesus's opening up a can incidents, okay? <laughs> but there's a lot to learn about the way that he managed his anger in those moments. So the first incident takes place early in Jesus's ministry. In fact, like he had just kind of, almost was kind of pushed forward by his mom um, at this wedding that he'd been at. He just turned the water to wine, okay, his first miracle. And right after he does that, he and his followers that he had at that point, they head over to Jerusalem because it's getting ready to be the Passover week and all Jews are heading there. Now, if you don't know much about the Passover, let me give you just a brief history of this is kind of a once a year celebration and Jews everywhere in the world all make a pilgrimage if they can manage it to Jerusalem to celebrate this event and what they're remembering is this time when they were slaves in Egypt and if you remember maybe scenes in the Bible where um, God puts some plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people to try to get them to let the Israelites go. And Moses is God's spokesperson. The last plague is the plague of the firstborn son. And God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn child in Egypt. And then he warns the, the Israelites. He says, hey, this is the way that you can avoid that. You have to, to get a, a pure spotless lamb that they, they use for animal sacrifice. And, and you have to get blood and you have to smear the blood of that over your doorposts. And then when the angel of death comes that night, if, if that blood is on your doorpost, the angel of death is going to pass over your house and not take your son. Okay, so that's why they call it the Passover. All right, so this is a time for them to come and really celebrate with gratitude what God did in that moment in their history, the way that he was compassionate in their story. So as you can imagine, and, and then, you know, the studies on kind of population and what it might have looked like, it was, it was literally like two, three million people are crowding in additional people into the streets of Jerusalem into just one really small walled city. Okay, so it is packed. And, and so there was this huge audience for Jesus when he really hadn't had much of an audience to this point. So we need some additional context here to understand why Jesus's anger overtakes him. You see, the Old Testament law required that when you came for Passover, came to the temple, you were supposed to give a half shekel offering. Okay, the problem was is that a shekel was a Jewish coin and it really wasn't in circulation in the Roman Empire anymore. So there's a limited number of shekels, and they were in the hands of people that wanted to make some money off of this, okay? So, so the, the people got together and they're like, hey, we can, we can charge these people a lot. So people traveling from different parts of the empire would show up in Jerusalem. They're like, well, I'll just exchange my money there. Well, the people knew that, you know, they could make a profit on this. So they would charge a huge exchange rate and take advantage of people. The second thing that the Old Testament law required was an animal sacrifice of either two turtle doves or two pigeons. You would give one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. And as you can imagine, if you're traveling hundreds of miles, you don't want to really carry a birdcage around all the time and hear that noise, right? So again, they'd get there and they're like, oh, I'll just buy it when I get there, right? Well, they're jacking up the price on, on turtle doves. Now, this just changes the 12 days of Christmas, doesn't it? You're like, oh, two turtle doves, huh, interesting. Okay, anyways. So these business and religious leaders in Jerusalem, they're happy to sell all the animals you needed, right? 
they just jack up the prices. You didn't have any other options. It's kind of like showing up at a Chiefs game and deciding that you want a Coke. And then like, you know, I guess I'm going to have to pay $8 in a souvenir glass. I don't even know what it costs anymore, but I guys have told you the story, but it's just so funny I have to repeat it. Like when I would take Zach to Chiefs games, this was years ago, like I would stock his coat full of stuff, right? Candy bars, stuff. And the whole time, if you know my son, he is like, he confesses sin before it even happens, right? And he's like, dad, are we supposed to be doing this? And this doesn't seem right. And I'm like, shut up, you know? Those lousy people in there are taking advantage of us, right? I was so in tune with the injustice. And I knew Jesus was upset. And so I tried to make it a spiritual conversation. But Bob Miller does not pay $8 for a Coke, I can tell you that. I will, uh, anyways, that's another conversation. But it's important for us to understand that at that time in history, so this, there's just layers here, okay? So it's Passover, you got the shekel thing, you got the offering, uh, the animal sacrifice. And you have to understand that at this time in history, the temple in Jerusalem was the only place that people had access to God in, in a tangible sense, okay? Jesus wasn't really known by the masses yet. He hadn't gone and lived his life out in his death, resurrection, to where, you know, now we have the Holy Spirit. Now we are the temple, each one of us, of God, right? Because the Holy Spirit resides in us, okay? At that time, there was one temple in the world. <laughs> now we're all temples of the Holy Spirit, okay? So very different mindset back then. At that time, God's presence only descended on humanity once a year in a room, an inner room in the temple called the Holy of Holies, kind of behind this curtain. And the only person that got to go in there, it's not the Wizard of Oz, it was the chief priest. And he was the only one that could go in and make a sacrifice um, for the people, for the nation of Israel. Once a year, he got to do that. So the temple was a big deal. And how you were treated when you arrived in Jerusalem at the temple on this pilgrimage should reflect God's loving heart towards those people. But it's easy to see that instead of that, folks were just being taken advantage of, okay? So now let's turn our Bible to John chapter two. It's page 1511. Starting in verse 13, John 2. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show, show, show us to prove your authority to do all this? So anyways, they continue on with this conversation. But so as I studied, I found that, that folks used to do all of this exchanging in, in this place called the Kidron Valley. 
which is just outside of the city. Like, so before you'd get into the walled city of Jerusalem, you do all this exchanging out there. Now they've moved this exchanging into the temple itself, in the courtyard of the temple, okay? So there's this consumerism and this worship crossing paths too closely, right? And kind of mixed in ways um, that made it very difficult for people to, to not be distracted from the worship that was supposed to be taking place. And pilgrims weren't seen as brothers and sisters in the faith, they were seen as consumers. And to top it all off, these tables were set up in an area of the temple known as the court of Gentiles, okay? So the temple had different places where different people could be. The more, uh, you know, the more holy you were in Jewish society, the more to the inner circle that you could get. Okay, but on the outside, the biggest courtyard was called the court of the Gentiles, right? So in the world at this time, you're either, if you're a Jew, you're an ethnic Jew, okay, or you're a Gentile, a non-Jew. So the court of the Gentiles would be people who weren't ethnically Jewish, but had converted to Judaism. Okay, so now you can imagine those folks arriving. These were people who had likely traveled the farthest and who would have felt like strangers to begin with. Those who felt furthest from the Father because they weren't ethnic Jews were suffering the most injustice. So I've been reading the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. I just finished that up um, and was reminded of this passage from Jeremiah 7. I want you to, if you can hold your finger on John 2 <laughs> and turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. It's page 1088. Jesus actually quotes some words from, from this prophet here. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So Jeremiah 7 says this, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have, have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. God, I love that last sentence, man. I've been watching you. <laughs> so, you can imagine that when Jesus arrives in the outer courts that day and sees what's going on and sees how the foreigners and the most vulnerable people are being treated, that it sets him off a little bit, right? 
He's more than a little triggered. And we have to remember that, like, in chronologically, like, this is the first moment of Jesus' anger that we see that's recorded here. So we have to know that this issue of, you know, denying people access to God or making that difficult is, is a very tender place for him. Right? A lot of times I've, in books I'm reading about, you know, being triggered and things like that, we call it like, like we all have these raw spots, these tender spots. Right? And so this is a really tender thing for God, the way these people are being treated. And remember, it was wall-to-wall people, right? So, so he walks into this courtyard that literally would have just been wall-to-wall. And he sees what's going on, and he's upset, and he's got to really think, how do I want to handle this? Because really, at that point, nobody really knew who he was, okay? What am I going to do here? So back in John 2, if you've kept that spot, what does Jesus do in verse 15? Raise your hand. Shout it out. What does he do? Yeah. He made a whip. Okay. He makes a whip. Now, I'm guessing, but in terms of being slow to anger, Jesus certainly has to slow down to create something here. So I'm picturing him kind of braiding this whip together. And kind of being like, okay, God, how are we going to handle this one? What do you want me to do here? All right, listening, any direction, you know? What are we going to do about this? I imagine Jesus praying as he puts this together. Because this, this is the deal. <laughs> Jesus could have cleared that courtyard without using a whip. I mean, he's God. He could have done anything he wanted. He could have had a tornado come down and just make everybody fly away. I mean, whatever. Snapped his fingers and made them all disappear. He could have handled it any way that he wanted to. So this interruption to create and to slow down was intentional. It was intentional. Sometimes we need a breather, don't we? A moment to pause and to think, how should I handle this situation? Maybe instead of making a whip, which I've never actually seen anybody do, I'd probably be a little bit freaked out if you did anyways. Um, But maybe in our society, we take a walk. In the past couple of years, I've been introduced to these little things. Fidget poppers, right? Yeah, right? And you get worked up, you're supposed to kind of pop these things. For me, I just get more angry. Uh, for some reason, trying to pop these, so that that doesn't work for me. Um, But we've got all these little things to kind of help try to calm us down, (laughs) try to take the edge off of our anger a bit. At least that's what we would hope to do in our better moments, right? But make no mistake, once Jesus takes a moment to braid that whip, he must have got the green light from God because he goes nuts, literally, and, and if you think about what's going on, I mean, it's really, sometimes when we read scripture, guys, we've got to really almost just stop and like close our eyes and try to imagine a huge courtyard crowded with people, tables, you know, all this stuff going on, animals. Like, imagine the power and strength 
that he had to display in that moment to clear that place of everyone. I mean, I would love to see how he managed to do that without sinning. How do you do that? I, I love, I had to laugh at this illustration that I came across this week. If someone asks, what would Jesus do? Remind them that turning over tables and breaking out whips is a possibility. <laughs> All right. When you have your WWJD bracelet on, you're probably always thinking, oh, he'd be nice. He'd forgive him. He'd whatever. Sometimes it's like, no, he'd probably turn the table over and whip some people. Yeah. That's in play, all right? And I actually try to think, okay, if they're going to make a movie and like play this scene out, what would be the soundtrack song for this moment? Could you roll that for me? Here we go. <laughs> Is it going to work, Grant? No? Oh, that hurts. Well, folks, I'm not even going to tell you what it was because it's, it was the song Whip It by Devo. I mean, I really, really spent like five hours in my office putting this all together for you. No. My wife also said I could have played We're Not Going to Take It by Twisted Sister, whatever, okay? If you don't know who Devo is, you've got to go back and watch the video because I watched it on YouTube again and it is ridiculous. The 80s was insane. So anyways, all right, so this is what's going on. Jesus is just whipping and going crazy. Now, I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 11 real quick, okay? Mark 11, it's page uh, 1443. So this is the second scene that takes place after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, so he's, he's kind of now at the, the end. This is like the last week of his life. Okay, it's three years later from that first scene that we just looked at. And he's a lot more famous now, right? In fact, people were just lining the streets, chanting his name and like pumping him up. Here comes the king as he rolled into town. Okay, so the entourage that shows up at the temple with him that week is definitely a lot bigger. And again, it's Passover week. Same kind of thing. The pilgrims were there flooding the streets, making their way to the temple. So let's look at verse 11 of chapter 11 of Mark. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus heads into the temple courts, maybe wondering, hey, I wonder what's changed in three years, right? They're probably still talking about the last time he was there. And he immediately sees that things are just as he remembers. Everybody's doing all the same stuff, the same unjust things they were doing three years ago. And I'm sure a lot of the same emotions kind of started brewing around in Jesus's soul. But what does he do? He sleeps on it. He actually sees it, 
was probably triggered in that moment of like, oh man, here we go again. And it says that he just leaves and he goes and spends the night in Bethany. He's slow to anger. And this is a really slow burning response because it's not even the first thing he does the next morning. It's later the next day before he returns to the temple. So let's look at verse 15 in chapter 11. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, so this is the next day, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. In another gospel, it says that the chief priests were indignant about what Jesus had done. So remember, we learned that last week. They were, they were shaking mad at him and literally were looking for ways to kill him, which they would do just a few days later. Now, we can get distracted by kind of all the visual chaos and intensity of this scene. And it seems a little bit outrageous. Like when we picture Jesus and kind of how he operated like this image of him like kind of going crazy and flipping things and whipping things is just like, wow. But let's not miss the heart behind Jesus' anger. What is making him angry? People are making it hard for those on the margin, the foreigner, the vulnerable, to get access to God. And I want you to imagine this scene from the viewpoint of the pilgrim, okay? This is the one and only temple of God, the one in the world. And they've maybe been hearing about this. Maybe this is their first journey to Jerusalem, their first pilgrimage. And so they're going and they're thinking, oh man, what is this gonna be like? I can't wait to get there and like just be in the presence of God and, and to worship and to pray and just to have some kind of peace and comfort come over me, a connection with him. But instead, you arrive and you walk through the gates of the temple, and it looks like a flea market on a Saturday morning in downtown Los Angeles or something, you know? Sheer chaos. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, but it, it looks and sounds more like you know, the, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where everybody's holding up their tickets and yelling at each other with a petting zoo thrown in for good measure, right? I don't want us to think about something for a moment. I've actually got a question I want to put up here. In what ways does the American church create so much noise that outsiders have a hard time encountering God? I'd love to get some feedback from you on that. What thoughts do you have? Yeah, Taylor. Uh, judgment. Judgment? Yeah. Okay. Can you give me a little bit more? Yeah, so uh, 
married people that have been doing church for a while, um, instead of being in a good position with other brothers and sisters that are in Christ, and um, shepherding and doing life with them, a lot of times um, it's said they want to just project onto other people that don't know Christ yet and call them to the same standard instead of loving on them. Hmm. Yeah, good. So he's talking about how sometimes as people that have been followers of Christ for a while, whatever, we can, we can look at, at outsiders and we can we put this expectation of, of behavior or attitude on them. Like, you know, in order to get in, you have to act or be a certain way um, instead of just meeting them where they are, which is, hey, this is a lost person that maybe doesn't know any different than what they've experienced. And we've got to, to love them towards the truth, Right. Okay, that's good. What else? Keep that question up there so people can keep stewing around on it a little bit. Yes, Robert. Yeah, so when we enter our voice into political discussions that people can equate, well, um, yeah, this opinion equates with Christians or God and God's viewpoint or whatever, so that can get a little skewed and maybe be difficult for people to navigate. Yes. Other things? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Trinity is real. No, the Trinity's not real. Yeah. You know, all the, just the right fighting, it's very easy to get consumed in denominations mm-hmm. and not seeing the big picture. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, think about an outsider looking at the church and being like, wow, there's hundreds of denominations and all kinds of different opinions on things. These Christians can't even agree on, on this, that, or the other, right? And I kind of call that like, and in some ways kind of getting lost in the weeds. You know, at Wellspring, I always try to think, like, what is the lost, hurting, broken person who comes through our door, what is their most important question? Is it where, whether we're predestined or not predestined or, you know, whether the Christians are going to, you know, be lifted up into heaven right when Jesus comes or they're going to have to stay here? It's like they don't care about any of that stuff. They want to know, is there somebody that loves me? Is there hope that my life can change? Am I loved by it? I mean, those are the burning questions, right? But we can create all these things to, to try to figure out, you know, or feel good about we're right on this particular topic when that's really not what the outsider cares about right now or maybe never does or should, okay? It's a great example. Yeah, Devin? Yeah. Okay, good. Just a lot of bad theology, he said, you know, um, traditions or things that kind of get thrown around like this is scriptural, but it's actually not even in the Bible, right, at times. So I, I thought too, like just in a literal sense, um, sometimes on, on Sunday mornings, you know, you, maybe, you, maybe you've seen on TV, I mean, just the entertainment value sometimes at church. 
the fog machines and the lights and, you know, the 50 singers on stage and, you know, just, um, they just, the, just the magnitude of the thought put into that actual noise sometimes. I think sometimes our busy church calendars can be noise that can keep people from actually Christians from being out in the world coaching their kids' teams and being room parents or however they can be engaged because they're so busy doing church stuff all week. They can leave the outsider separated from the Christians because they're off doing church stuff all the time. I really do believe that people are desperate for an encounter with the divine, with the holy, with the miraculous, the otherworldly. And I'm wondering, are we creating a safe and inviting space for that encounter to happen for people? Trusting that the Holy Spirit can satisfy people's hearts in ways that programs and professionalism just can't. And not only does our noise become a hindrance to people encountering God, but it's pretty obvious that our sin does as well. Jesus is angry at the sin of the religious leaders in these stories. Those pilgrims' first experience at the temple was being robbed and taken advantage of. Welcome to church, right? On a much more subtle level, I wonder about the way that we greet or welcome people in our doors when they come through for the first time who may feel on the outside for whatever reason, socioeconomically, racially, sexual orientation, or just from whatever sin or shame they may be carrying around that makes them feel not good enough or unworthy of God's love or our acceptance. When people come into our doors here at church, do we engage them? Do we ask them their name? Do we take the time to learn a little bit about their story? Do we go so far as to say, hey, is there anything I can do to, to help you this morning? Do you know where to check your kids in? Would you like some coffee? Hey, you doing anything after church today? Would you like to maybe grab lunch with my family? Hospitality. Does our sin get in the way of people's desire to pursue God based on the way that we live and act at our job or at school, in our neighborhood, in the stands at a sporting event? Ooh, wow. You pulled that knife out of my back. Yeah, I just stabbed myself. Sorry about that. All right? There was a time in my life it had been like, Pastor Bob. I was Coach Bob most of the time. You might be a hindrance to people coming to Jesus by the way you're acting. That's neither here nor there. Guys, do our actions or lack of actions become a hindrance? You know, one thought I had about the scene at the temple was where were the people just donating animals to the weary travelers? Hey, I know you've come a long way. Need a couple doves? I've been like, breeding doves for the last year just so that I could give some out to some folks who might be a little worn out from the trip, maybe a little short of money. 
Where were the people fairly exchanging money or just giving it away out of generosity to foster access to God, removing barriers instead of creating them, going the extra mile for people so that they can encounter a life-changing God, right? Do we have that thought? Are we thinking like that? (laughs) What can I do to help people have access to him? There were definitely some practical tips on display today in helping us become more slow to anger, okay? Taking a moment to breathe, right? Maybe you need to go out today and buy some leather so you can braid a whip next time you are thinking about, you know, punishing your children, whatever. Some time to get some perspective. Maybe you need to knit a sock or something. Maybe that's a better illustration, right? But just having something that will help you to actually stop, I'm talking about help you, help us, because this is me too, to stop and pray and listen to what the Spirit might be saying in the moment. Here's how I'd like you to handle the situation with whoever that's driving you nuts right now, right? And usually what the Spirit says is, how do I handle that with you when you're driving me nuts sometimes? The Spirit's usually pretty gentle towards me. Or maybe even sleeping on it (laughs) to give some extended time of prayer and contemplation, maybe a time to call a friend, like phone a friend, you know? Hey, I'm really mad. I want to be my neighbor. Should I do that? Hopefully your neighbor says, no, you shouldn't, right? And, and, and just create some space there to get some perspective that maybe when you wake up the next day, you don't feel quite as agitated as you did the night before. I can tell you what you shouldn't do. Well, let's get on Facebook. We talked about that last week, right? But like, don't find other people to just validate the way you wanna feel. Because you can definitely paint a narrative to slant it so you can get the response back from your buddy who then will give you permission to go and act crazy, all right? Find your calm friend who will actually speak the truth to you at times that might give you some sound advice, okay? So those are all great things to incorporate into our lives, okay? But guys, let's not miss the bigger picture as well. And remember, what was driving Jesus's anger in this story? And let's be honest about how bothered we are with the way that we either individually or corporately as a church create barriers or hinder people's access to God. And may our prayer be this, Lord, may nothing we do or don't do get in the way of someone's desire to encounter you in a life-changing way. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these, (laughs) these scenes. And I always think, like, if you were going to paint this picture of just this gentle, loving Jesus, like, you would not include these stories. And so I just, I love the fact that you throw in stories like this, so you're just like, huh, well, that's interesting. (laughs) Jesus got crazy and turned tables over and whipped the crowd, and you're, you're just so complex, God. Your range of emotions is just so big, and and. And so we can connect and relate to you no matter what we're experiencing or what we're feeling. 
And I thank you for that. And God, I, I, I thank you for the, the ways you showed us today that maybe we can slow down. I mean, if, if a perfect Jesus had to wait a minute, sleep on it, how much more should imperfect each one of us have some barriers and some checks in place to not just act in the moment that we get triggered about something? And God, there, there are lots of reasons why we... Um, lack the ability to put the brakes on. And we're going to continue to talk about that more and more throughout this series. We're going to get to some more practical things. But God, more than anything, help us to remember your heart. And instead of this being just a story about Jesus going crazy and flipping tables, we need to remember that this is a story about denying access to you. That the people that are on the margins feeling the most pushed away, the most isolated, and the church was taking advantage of them. And so God, is, as a church, Wellspring here, God, we need to really ask ourselves some hard questions. Are we removing barriers? Maybe it's just attitude, it's a perspective, maybe it's the way we do church sometimes so that people can access you, the living water, the hope that they're coming to encounter. God, help us not to do anything that gets in the way of people experiencing your hand, your touch, your forgiveness, your grace, your love, your mercy, your tenderness, your compassion. God, we love you and pray that you would just continue to change us and shape us. In Jesus' name, amen.